Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the text for the 10th Sunday after Pentecost. We hope that you're sharpened and edified by this discussion over these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart. I'm here with Brian Motes and Alistair Roberts, and we're here to discuss the readings for the 10th Sunday after Pentecost. Uh, The readings for this Sunday are Genesis 9, verses 8 through 17, Ephesians 3, verses uh, 14 through 21, and Mark 6, verses 45 through 56. And these are the readings for the 10th Sunday after Pentecost, which in 2018 is July 29th. Uh, so let's uh, begin with the with the Genesis reading. This is uh, obviously part of the flood narrative, the conclusion of the flood narrative. It's after the flood has dissipated and Noah is now on dry land and he's uh, beginning to, uh, beginning again as a new Adam in a world that's been um, then pur- been purified and cleansed by the flood, uh, God has cut off all flesh, and now uh, there's time for new li- uh, new life. End of chapter eight. Uh, Noah has offered an, uh, a, a, an offering of every clean animal and bird, an ascension offering every every clean animal and bird, and the Lord responds to that uh, the aroma of that offering by uh, promising not to curse the ground. And it's in that's the uh, it's in that context I think that we can uh, see the the reading uh, for this week, which is Genesis nine eight through seventeen specifically. Uh, the Lord uh, makes a promise at the end of chapter eight that's described as a covenant. He's establishing his covenant with Noah and his descendants and with every other cre- with every creature, uh, and then institutes the sign of the covenant, uh, the rainbow in the sky. One wouldn't have mentioned this that. Um, it was helpfully brought out by uh, Michael Morales in his book called uh, The Tabernacle Prefigured. Uh, he uh, notes, uh, as many commentators have done, that there's a, a kind of sanctuary dimension to the ark itself. Like ho- holy spaces in the Bible, the ark is measured, uh, and it's, it's, it's built in three stories. It has, uh, like the sanctuaries, have three different zones to them. But uh, one of the things that uh, Morales points out is that it's not just the ark itself, but it's the scene after the ark has come to rest on Mount Ararat uh, with Noah and his altar and his sacrifice. That scene is also a kind of proto-temple scene. So you have the ark itself on top of a mountain. You're back on an Edenic setting. Humanity is starting out on another mountain and you have all the animals there. You have an offering made and you have uh, the Lord's promise given and a mention of a cloud, if not a cloud appearing, but a cloud with a rainbow in it. I think that's helpful for establishing some of the later, the later episodes or scenes where you see the uh, rainbow come up, uh, which are in Revelation, for example, in the in the uh, heavenly sanctuary when John enters the heavenly sanctuary. The rainbow is part of that setup surrounding the throne of the enthroned one. The rainbow, the rainbow is uh, visible in the glory cloud that uh, Ezekiel sees. I think part of the symbolism of the colors within the tabernacle curtains and so on and the priest's clothing, uh, those are, are 
displaying rainbow kinds of colors, a variety of colors. And so the, the liturgical context for this promise uh, uh, that's uh, sealed by the rainbow is, uh, I, I think, important to note. The connection that you suggest between the Edenic situation and this passage, I think, is also given more weight with the events that immediately follow, where there is a full um, series of events. A garden that's planted with the vineyard, eating of the fruit, nakedness, and um, then judgment upon three persons, but blessing in the case of two of them. Yeah, so as soon as you have a new Adam, you have an, an almost instantaneous fall, <laughs> which is a, a, common, a common dynamic in the Bible. God designates some, some man as a new Adam, some woman as a new Eve, and they, uh, typically there's a, something, something bad happens almost immediately. Uh, this is also the, the first time we have the notion of a covenant sign, and I think that this sets up the theology of covenant signs that uh, runs really through the remainder of the Bible, uh, up until the uh, up until the uh, Lord's Supper as a covenant sign, the blood of the covenant, the blood of the new covenant. Uh, and I think a couple a couple of things that are crucial to this. First of all, obviously this it's a, it's a sign of uh, a covenant commitment that the Lord has made. The Lord has made a promise. It's a universal promise to Noah and to his children and to his his uh, descendants, and to all living creatures. They're all encompassed within this promise. And the sign is a memorial of that promise. Uh, the language of memorial comes out in verse 15. Uh, the Lord is going to set his bow in the cloud, and then uh, when he sees it, he'll remember his covenant, which is between him and uh, every living creature of all flesh. So the, the directionality of the sign is important. It's a covenant sign. It's a, it's a reminder of the Commitment that the Lord has made, the promise He's made to Noah and his, uh, and the world that uh, that of which Noah is the head, but it's a sign that's directed for, in the first instance uh, as a sign directed to the Lord as a way of memorializing the Lord's promise to Him, reminding Him of the commitment that He's made, so that He will continue to keep His promise. And secondarily, you could say, well, when we see the rainbow in the sky, we we remember God's promise and we're reassured that God will keep His commitment, which is true. Um, but our reassurance is not the ground for the, the commitment actually being kept. <laughs> uh, we could remember all we want. If, not, if God is not consistent in, in him remembering his covenant, then the covenant won't be, made, uh, won't be kept. So the important thing is that the Lord remembers covenant. Uh, the way that this is portrayed in, in Revelation, Jesus appears rain, with a rainbow around his head. The, the throne has a, a rainbow around it. The picture is that there's a, it's not a periodic appearance of the rainbow. Uh, it's rather a continuous appearance of the rainbow, which means continuous memorial of God's promise. The Lord doesn't forget his promise because the rainbow is before him all the time. So uh, he's light, he's radiant, he dwells in a cloud. And so he can't help but uh, produce rainbow effects around him. Do you have any thoughts on the relationship between, as I think Jim Jordan talks about as the above and the below waters within this particular covenant sign. Is it What is the significance of the fact that the rainbow is placed in the cloud in particular? Well, you'll have to remind me of what, um, what Jim says about that. I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> I agree with it completely, but I just don't know what it was. <laughs> I, can't, I can't entirely recall. Yeah. But we do see these 
within um, the second day of creation and then also within things like the deliverance from the Red Sea, you have the cloud above and then you have the waters beneath. Yeah, uh, And they have different associations. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, that's a really good question. Let me, um, let me talk and see if anything meaningful comes out of my mouth. <laughs> and and I'm 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 trying to summarize what I do remember things that Jim has talked about with the waters above and below. Day two of creation, you have the formation of this structure of heavenly waters and earthly waters, and the firmament that divides them. Uh, Jim has talked about it, that as the first exodus in the Bible. The first exodus motif is the not just the division of the water, but the movement of waters up above, so that it's they're they're separated. The flood seems to, at least in effect, uh, the the firmament collapses. I don't want to. I'm not speaking literally here, but the the boundary between heavenly water and earthly water collapses. Certainly, the boundary between land and sea collapses. But you have a decreation, and the entirety of the world is flooded. You're back to the back to the formless void of the original creation, and then the 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 wind of the Spirit blows again when God remembers Noah and right in the chiastic center of the flood story in Genesis 8.1. God remembers Noah and the, the Spirit wind begins to blow the waters away. And ultimately the effect of that is to reestablish uh, the boundary between land and sea. And I think also, at least if not literally, but at least conceptually, the boundary between the heavenly waters that have um, come down in judgment and the waters below. So maybe... Maybe what Jim said, <laughs> and uh, maybe this is maybe this is a coherent thought, that the bow in the sky is it is a promise that the Lord won't flood the the earth again. But uh, specifically, or to say the same thing, I guess it's placed in the firmament, in the cloud, in the firmament, in order to signify the permanence of that boundary, or at least that that boundary is not going to be breached. Yeah, you know, the, the permanence of the boundary between the upper waters and the lower waters. Does that? Is that the kind of thing that uh, he might have said? <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> uh, someday we'll get him back on the uh, on the podcast, and he can speak for himself. Uh, one one other comment. This, this is a something that uh, uh, Dave Chilton points out in probably in several places, but uh, in Days of Vengeance, his commentary on Revelation, he points out that the word for bow in the Hebrew is the same as the word for. Uh, the word for rainbow is the same as the word for warbow. There's no, uh, there's no specific word in Hebrew as there is in Greek for rainbow. And he suggests that what we see in the flood promise and the flood sign is the Lord placing his bow, his warbow in the heavens. He's just gone out as uh, the divine warrior, riding on his cloud, shooting arrows, uh, flashes of lightning, destroying the world, but now he's hung up his bow in the clouds, and that's a that's the particular sign that um, he's not going to go to war to destroy the to destroy all flesh again. The reference to animals within this passage I find striking. Um, reading scripture in the past, I've never really paid much attention to animals, but there are a few occasions where they are really brought to the foreground. And the fact that the covenant is made not just with Noah and his descendants, but also with every living creature that is with him, and those creatures being enumerated, I think is worth reflecting upon, that the animals are protected not merely as means for food 
and sacrifice, but they also are here treated as the objects of a divine covenant. I wonder how to think about um, the relation of that, the, spe- the specificity of that in the Noahic covenant. And the, uh, I think there's still the case in, for example, the Mosaic covenant, uh, that you have a uh, animals are somehow Israel's animals, at least, are somehow included under that under that umbrella. Uh, I'm thinking of things like uh, Sabbath day is, uh, is the Sabbath is extended to animals to work animals. I'm thinking about the various laws uh, that deal with uh, the responsibility of animals for uh, violence, the the goring ox. So the, the goring ox is. The ox that's in the habit of goring is held responsible for that and is put to death. There's various various hints that uh, animals are somehow encompassed by the Mosaic Covenant, but it it it's uh, not nearly as explicit as this, uh, where the Lord says that He's uh, making this covenant with uh, Noah, his descendants, living creatures, birds, cattle, beasts of the earth, everything that was on the earth is encompassed by this. That's very explicit. And and I guess I'm raising a question. Is it unique in being so explicit? Or can we perhaps see this um, uh, as an anticipation somehow of the new covenant, the various images, that uh, prophecies we have in the Old Testament of a restored world in which animals are included at in harmony with, with human beings? Any thoughts on that? Um, I would say it probably does. I'm also think about the haunting question at the end of Jonah that mentions the fact that there are many livestock in um, Nineveh. It's a detail that we maybe don't give enough attention to. Right, right. And it's, it's, and it's uh, part of the Lord's reason for having compassion on the city. It's a city with human souls, but also he's concerned about... Uh, uh, Noah, uh, uh, Jonah rather should have uh, compassion on the city, not only for the human beings that whose lives are at stake there, but also for the animals that are living there. Uh, just a, a very much a side note, something that I happen to be uh, thinking about the last week or so as I've been working on a a lecture that I'm giving in in a couple weeks. Um, I've been looking at some of the work of John Ruskin, and Particularly, I came across a couple of books uh, and essays by George Landau, who talks about Ruskin's debt to typological readings of the Bible. And Ruskin is indebted to these not only for the occasional references he makes, you know, explicit references to the Bible and interpretation of the Bible, but Landau is saying that these typological ways of reading and typological readings of the Bible are embedded in Ruskin's theory of art, his understanding of architecture, his understanding, for example, of color depends in, in a significant way on, on the rainbow as the sign of the covenant. So um, he talks about the uh, color as being, I think he uses the word purity, purification, sanctification of painting uh, or of uh, visual art. You can have uh, a form of a, an animal, for example, and that, that indicates the, the thing that it is. It's associated with the existence of the thing or the essence of the thing, perhaps. But then uh, if you paint the animal with color, then you're adding, again, he uses the word sanctification or purification. And he's drawing that partly from Leviticus. But he also talks about uh, color as a, uh, not just in the rainbow, but color in general as a 
manifestation of love and and bases it on this scene and uses that biblically derived category as a way of talking about the role of color in painting. Along similar lines, I find this is a passage I return to on occasions just thinking about the way scripture privileges or gives weight to our vantage point within the universe. That the universe isn't just a matter of matter in motion, but there is a something that is a perceptual object like the the rainbow that is not there in the way that um, a rock is there, but is nonetheless really present and spoken of in a way that we're supposed to recognize that it is truly there, that God perceives it and that we are supposed to perceive it too, that this sign of the covenant, even though it's something that from a scientific perspective, you could question whether it is really there in the cloud. Um, from a biblical perspective, it is very much really there in the cloud. And I think that helps us to understand what it means for us to be at home within the world and maybe pushes back against some of the more scientific ways of viewing creation. That's that. I think that's part of Ruskin's premise, I guess, or maybe his point that the the rainbow is a it's a natural phenomenon, but it's a natural phenomenon that is a, a, that that has meaning, and it's not. And his uh, the uh, point is not simply that uh, there's a divinely assigned meaning that's given to it, but that the divinely assigned meaning has some is um, related in some way to the to what it naturally is, to what God created it to be. Uh, it's not an arbitrary label on something that doesn't other that otherwise doesn't fit this covenant. It doesn't. It's not that it doesn't fit naturally as a covenant sign. It's a suitable thing for God to designate as a covenant sign. So the the connection between uh, God's designation and the the natural phenomenon is part of uh, part of what, part of the reason why Ruskin can think he can draw some conclusions about color in general from a passage that's dealing with uh, again the covenant sign of the rainbow. We can move on to uh, maybe Ephesians, the Ephesians reading, uh, which is Ephesians uh, 3, verses 14 through 21. It's the latter part of Ephesians 3. Uh, we talked about Ephesians 2 last time, the latter half of Ephesians 2. And I think the, it's helpful to get the logic of the letter here. I think the logic is uh, comes out when we look at the similarity between the beginning of chapters 3 and 4. Paul begins chapter 3 saying, For this reason I, Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then my NESB helpfully puts in a dash, indicating that Paul uh, was called away for a moment, and when he returned, he forgot what he had been writing, and he starts writing about something else. And then, the beginning of chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I'm not serious about the reason for the dash. I do think the dash is helpful because I do think that there's a kind of digression going on in chapter 3. Paul's ready to start talking about the calling with which they have been called at the beginning of chapter 3 after explaining their vocation to live as the one new humanity. That's the vocation that they have. But in before he gets around to uh, giving those exhortations, which happen in chapter 4, there's this dig digression in chapter 3, which has to do with Paul's own participation in the revelation of this mystery. He calls himself a steward of uh, the mystery of God. He's um, been entrusted with this. 
the mystery is that Gentiles are fellow partakers and fellow members of the body, that the Gentiles who were aliens and strangers have been brought near and become saints and have are now participating as members of this one household, this one new humanity. That is the mystery that's now been revealed. And then Paul goes on in chapter 4 to, dis- to explain how we live, how we're to live given that that's the case. It's the imperative that follows from the indicative. You are the one new humanity, therefore you should live in this, uh, in this way uh, as the one new humanity. So that's the, that's the large, larger context for the specific verses we have for this week, which is in vor- uh, verses 14 through 21. Those verses also seem to have a very strong Trinitarian flavor. You have the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and then returning through those themes, filled with all the fullness of God, perhaps a reference to the Spirit again, and then now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, um, the Father again. And there's that Trinitarian density of that passage, I think, is particularly important, that this family isn't just the bringing together of two different human groups, but it's the formation of a people that has access to God through Christ in the Spirit. Yeah, and, and um, Trinitarian and roughly chiastic, Father, Spirit, Christ, if you, fullness is Spirit, Spirit, Father, that would be kind of neat. As, as you've been having from the beginning of Ephesians, you have the, uh, these, uh, Trinitarian, these Trinitarian structures that uh, are uh, crucial, I think, to Paul's, the way Paul thinks. The Father who sends, the, sends his Son, who gives the Spirit, who brings people back to Father. Uh, any, any thoughts on the um, geometric terminology at the end of verse 18? This is a prayer. It's a prayer that the Lord would grant the riches of his glory, strengthening that Christ may dwell in our hearts and that we may comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth. Uh, there's a fourfold there. Uh, there's a uh, suggested universality. Uh, perhaps, tell me what you think of this, Alistair, uh, perhaps a reference back to the architectural imagery that you had in chapter 2 where it's the, the whole building that's being fitted together and growing into a temple of the Lord. And now this architectural imagery is being applied to something. Uh, any thoughts on that, um, that breadth, length, height, depth idea? Yeah, that would be the lines that my um, thinking would go as well. Um, I'd also suggest that that fourfold recognition um, probably refers back to Ephesians 1. 18 following, um, where there's a fourfold thing to know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, the greatness of his power, um, and there was one other. <laughs> the un- Yeah, I'm, I'm not seeing it right now, but it seems to be a very similar sort of argument that's being made. Yeah. We trust you that there were four. <laughs> Verse 18 uses this language, breadth, length, height, and depth. That's usually... I think that's usually understood to be the dimensions of God's love for us. That's not explicitly said, though. Maybe that's what it's getting at, because it goes on. Paul goes on to talk about uh, he wants the saints to comprehend. He wants the Ephesians to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. 
Um, but uh, it's not an explicit uh, object whose dimensions are being referred to. Uh, maybe it's the love of God, but maybe it's the mystery, which would take us again back to chapter 2 and the building imagery of chapter 2. That uh, Certainly there are plenty of there are plenty of symbolic dimensions given in places like Ezekiel or Revelation that are supposed to be comprehended and are images of a body of people um, that in a way that explores building um, symbolism. Right, which which also uh, uh, may imply if that's if that's the direction that Paul's uh, imagery is going, then comprehend uh, uh, common would be common to take that as intellectual comprehension that we un- come to understand the breadth, length, height, and depth. But if we're talking about um, the mystery, which is the church, the body of people. Uh, then it's not simply an intellectual uh, acknowledgement of it or comprehension, but something, uh, maybe something more active to bring to realization perhaps. I'm not sure what the, the Greek verb is there, but perhaps there's some other connotation than the, uh, the purely intellectual one that we should try to, try to bring in there. I've always been taken with verse 20, um, which um, just a, a testimony to the excessive the abundance of God. God is able to do what we ask him. Paul could have said that. Paul is able. Uh, uh, Paul could have said God is able to do uh, more than we ask of him. What Paul says is that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly, not only beyond all that we ask, but beyond all that we can think other translations have imagined. He's commending the Ephesians to this God, He's just spoken a prayer to this God, and this God is a God who has, uh, whose capacities are so infinite that we can't even imagine the abundance of what he can give and do and actually do within us, because Paul goes on to say, exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. So uh, that's always, it's always struck me as a, a tremendous encouragement to prayer. You know, even even somebody with a very active imagination, somebody with uh, great ambitions for serving God's kingdom, uh, only has a small glimpse of what God is capable of doing. Even somebody who ha- you know prays the boldest possible prayers about what you know, give me China. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that's that's um, God is able to do abundantly more, exceedingly abundantly beyond even a prayer. Like that, even the the greatest thing, the the greatest, uh, uh, the widest scope of anything uh, is uh, uh, he's he's be able able to exceed that abundantly. And Paul seems to have a very within this immediate context. I think he has a very acute sense of just the grace of God that has been bestowed upon him in the role that he plays within this. That he the less than the least of all the saints. I mean, the exaggerated language of um, verse 20, and then this is a less than the least, and that he is the one that should be the one through whom this mystery is particularly made known. And that sense of the um, his being awestruck and um, just dwarfed by the 
sheer scale of this mystery, something that stretches back to the very dawn at the very beginning. It's something that expresses riches of grace beyond that which he could ever imagine and stretches to the very heights of heaven, the principalities and powers, and then stretches across all of the earth. In that sense, that those dimensions are something that he sees himself within this vast edifice of mm. God's purpose, that the plans have been delivered to him, this feeble tent maker, mm-hmm. and now he's supposed to declare them. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, declare them, and he's a steward of the ministry, uh, of the mystery. He's assigned to bring to light the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order to display the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities. So, yeah, despite his, both his limitations being a creature and his life of persecution, despite that, he's been chosen to be an agent for the manifestation of the mystery. The other thing I wanted to highlight in verse 20 is the uh, concluding clause, a concluding phrase, uh, God is able to work exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or imagine, according to the power that works within us, which I think has to be the power of the Spirit, which is the power of the risen Christ. It's the power that raised us from the dead when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, as we talked briefly about last last time. That's the power that's working within us, the power of resurrection. And that's the measure of the power that... Um, that works within us, that's the measure of the abundance of God. Even at the, what for human beings is the insurmountable limit, death, God's power is exceedingly beyond that, that limit. Uh, let's take a few minutes to uh, cl- close with a uh, brief glimpse of uh, you know, Mark 6. Uh, we've been talking about Mark for some time now. This is the uh, latter part of this chapter, verses 45 to 56. And there are a couple of different things go on here. Uh, we talked last time about Jesus in the wilderness feeding people, organizing them into hundreds and fifties, uh, a wilderness scene, Jesus as the new Moses, Jesus as Yahweh feeding his people in the wilderness. Uh, in verses 45 to 52, he's crossing water at night. And uh, there's an Exodus passage that consistent with that. And then he gets on onto the other side of the uh, sea, and he uh, continues his ministry there, uh, a ministry of healing and exorcism and the other things he's been doing already. Uh, and there, I think of a couple ways to think about this. I mean, you could say that the you just have a cluster of Exodus uh, episodes, Exodus-related episodes, a feeding of a multitude, a crossing of the sea, another feeding of the multitude, and there's not any particular order or uh, order or sequence to them. They're just kind of clustered together in Mark, or they might have some kind of formal order. I, I wonder if we should think about it rather as there is actually a, a sequence here replicating some part of the Exodus story, but rather than thinking about this as a meal leading to water crossing, leading into the wilderness. Jesus is with uh, these 5,000 in the wilderness in uh, chapter th- uh, chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. You start out in the wilderness, and then he, then he moves through the water. 
And then he goes into the land of Gennesaret and carries out this ministry of healing and exorcism. So instead of being a sequence of uh, exiting Egypt, I wonder if it, it's better read as a sequence of uh, wilderness uh, crossing water uh, to conquest. And then the, uh, the further he, uh, feeding of the 4,000 would have a, have a kind of different connotation. You're no longer, that may not have the same kind of a wilderness connotations as the previous. That might make better sense of the sequence. That this is actually, Jesus is actually moving out of the Egypt of Herod's kingdom through the wilderness where he feeds his people, crossing the water, and then gets on the other side of the water and begins to heal. That's, that's the form of conquest that he's carrying out. It's a more an Elisha kind of conquest than a Joshua kind of conquest. It's a conquest of uh, healing and mercy rather than one of destruction. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's quite possible. I think maybe one detail that's worth reflecting upon within this particular um, account is the reference to the disciples seeing Christ walking upon the water and the fact it says... And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Is that a reference back to God passing before Moses so Mm. that Moses sees his glory? Mm. Quite possibly. The other thing that Richard Hayes drew my attention to the passage in Job 9, where it talks about God's glory and his power over creation, removes the mountains, Um, shakes the earth out of its place etc and then it says he alone spreads out the heavens in verse 8 following and treads on the waves of the sea he made he made the bear orion and the pleiades and the chambers of the south he does great things past finding out yes wonders without number if he goes by me or passes by me i do not see him if he moves moves past i do not perceive him and he suggests that there's a, a possible allusion to that passage mm. with Christ walking on the water and then seeming to be about to pass by. Yeah, interesting. Um, that, w- that would suggest more of an, an Exodus uh, background rather than a, uh, an entry into the land background. And maybe that's, maybe that's the best way to take it in any case. I mean, this is a night passage across the water, which... Uh, may link up better with Exodus rather than with conquest. Verse 52 says that the apostles were astonished at Jesus. Uh, when he comes into the boat, the wind stops. And the reason they're astonished is because they haven't gained any insight from the loaves. Their hearts are hardened. It goes back to the point I made in the last uh, podcast where it's a point I picked up from Ricky, Ricky Watts who talks about the miracles of Jesus as enacted parables. These are actions that identify Jesus as Yahweh, as um, the, uh, uh, the divine warrior who's come to deliver his people and to bind the strong man and so on. So that's, the, that's what they should be drawing from these episodes, but they don't. Rather, their hearts are hardened, which is a pretty strong indictment of the apostles. Um, that's a Pharaoh, that's, that's Pharaoh's condition. And that's the condition of Israel that Jesus comes to. Their, their, heart, their hearts are hardened, and so uh, he begins to teach them in parables because their hearts are hardened. Jesus later on will question, are your hearts, uh, are, are, do you have hardened hearts? Are your heart, do, you, do you not understand anything? Are your hearts also hardened? 
So the disciples are actually participating in the, the condition of Israel. They're being delivered from that condition. Uh, they're being, their eyes are being opened. They're being equipped to carry on Jesus' ministry. But uh, Mark, uh, perhaps more than the other Gospels, Mark is emphasizing the, uh, the degree that the apostles participate in this Egyptian-like illness of hardness of heart and how long and difficult the road is for them to be healed of that. Which, among other things, I mean, this is part of the, uh, interestingly, part of the establishment of the kingdom. Jesus establishes the kingdom by his own ministry, but he's doing that in conjunction with the apostles. So that's there's this uh, corporate aspect to the establishment of the kingdom. I think it's also obvious that this is supposed to be instructive to disciples that come after who aren't following Jesus around Galilee. They're, um, it's both a challenge to us as disciples of Jesus centuries later. Are your heart hearts hard? Mark is asking us. Uh, are you also blind? But then it's also a reassurance because the the apostles are healed. The po- apostles do get sight. The apostles' hearts are softened and they're given new hearts. Uh, so uh, that the uh, the sequence of uh, the sequence the, the storyline of the apostles is an, a, ultimately an encouraging and hopeful storyline for us. When we're talking about the sign of the loaves, um, would this help us to understand a bit more of what's going on there? That it, first of all, the challenge was you give them something to eat. It was their task that was a task that was set before them. And then they were given the task of dividing people out and then picking up 12 baskets. Um, is the significance in part that each one of the apostles had a basket of their own that they um, each had a full basket of fragments at the end. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And uh, remind me of where you started that comment. Uh, what was your initial initial thought? That the miracle is not one that Christ does just directly himself. Rather, he tells them, you give them something to eat. And then, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And he's performing this miracle through his disciples, and then they gather up this great um, collection of fragments, each one of them with a full basket. Right, right. So the so the point would be that the sign of the loaves is not just not just about the identity of Jesus as the one who feeds his people, the good shepherd of the flock, but the sign of the loaves is also that being with Jesus and being ministers along with Jesus means that they will have uh, sufficient. Uh, resources to distribute yes and in part that's one of the reasons why they should be of good cheer that and not be afraid it's a very familiar response to a theophany or response to the fear that a theophany occasions but they should recognize that they are dealing with the the one who has control over all these forces but yet they are also being involved in that um that The work is being ministered through them. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.